God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the privilege to worship you, our great God and creator and king. We thank you for the chance to see the word manifested, the fact that you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God in the lives of your children. We thank you for continuing your covenant throughout future generations. And as we come to the preaching of your word, I pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would open our minds, open our hearts, that you would be with me, your feeble and humble servant, and that you would take the words that I speak and that you would use them for your glory. We pray, O oh God, that your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you intend, that which you purpose, and that you, O oh God, would be praised. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, first of a two-part series, it's not what you know, it's who you know. We're going to look at three things in particular today. The first thing is, what exactly did the disciples know? The second, what did the Jewish leaders know? And then the third, we're going to talk about the fragrance of Christ. Let me pause and just give a little background context to uh, this particular passage. If you look at the broader story of what is happening here in Acts chapter 4, we know that on Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and James and John, they had uh, gone up to the temple and that they uh, encountered a man there who had been crippled. And he had been crippled for a long time. And the Bible here in chapter 4 says that he was over 40 years of age. So we don't know exactly how long he had lain at the gate, beautiful, or there in the precincts of the temple. But what we do know is that he was a man in need. And God miraculously, through uh, Peter, through uh, John, used his disciples in order to bring healing and deliverance to this man. Well, obviously, this did not go unnoticed by the Jewish leaders of the day. And so they called Peter and John in their midst, and they began to um, question them as to why this miracle had happened. But it's astounding to me, particularly the first part of verse 13, that when we get to our text, the Jewish leaders are astonished at the boldness of Peter and John because, and note what the text says, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. Then it goes on to say they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. As we near the end of 2018 and as we are on the doorsteps of a new year, 2019, let me challenge you, let me encourage you to ask the question, what makes me a Christian? Or perhaps you're here this morning and you're here out of curiosity. You're here because your family member invited you here, perhaps a friend. But if someone were to ask you, are you a Christian, you don't believe that you are. Perhaps you've been attending church here, maybe a member, and you've been a member for many years. But if we were to ask you the question, what makes you a Christian, what would you say? I believe that for many of us, whenever we start thinking about God, when we start thinking about Christ, we think about our relationship to him, we define that relationship in three different ways. The first way is conceptually. We want to talk about what we believe about God, our theology. This is where doctrine comes in, where orthodoxy comes in. And so for many people, they like to dwell at that level. In fact, I would say probably for most of the, us in this room, I would suspect that if somebody asked you the question, what makes you a Christian, you would default to what you believe. 
The second level from which we often answer this question is the behavioral level or the moral level. We think about God in terms of if we truly believe that he exists, then obviously he must want something from us. And so the tendency with those who focus on the behavioral aspect of our Christian faith, the behavioral aspect of theology, is to become legalistic and focus more on what you do than on who you are. And I would argue that the downside, the equal downside to those who simply focus on the conceptual, the theological, the doctrinal, is that the God that we serve becomes relegated to a creed that we affirm instead of a person with whom we relate. And then the third way that we can interact with the question, what makes you a Christian, is what I call the experiential. Now, if we were to take a step back and look at our society in general, Christian and non-Christian alike, I believe that everyone is trying to process God on one of those three levels. And then we look within the church, and often we like to pick and choose. For instance, the denomination I grew up in was very experiential. And so we focused all of our attention on having an experience with God. And doctrine and what you believed was sort of secondary. I think our temptation, and I'm speaking as uh, someone who loves the denomination that I'm in and who chose to be Presbyterian, who chose to be part of the Presbyterian Church in America, but I fear that often our temptation is to focus so much on what we believe that we relegate God to the intellect. Yes, we may talk about the implications of what we believe and how it should impact our day-to-day -day behavior, but how often do we really discuss experiencing a person, encountering a God who is there? And so what I'd like to do today and next Sunday, God willing, is to reflect on this third aspect. Not at the expense of the other two. Because biblically speaking, when we are introduced to the God of the Bible, all three areas are addressed simultaneously. It's not enough simply to relate to God as a person without how we relate to him overflowing into how we think about him. And so I am not saying that what you believe, that doctrine is not important, nor am I saying that what you do, behavior, is not important. But rather, I want to redirect our attention at the end of this year and the beginning of the next to whether we see our faith as living, whether we see our faith as active, whether we see our faith as a relationship with a living and personal God through Christ Jesus. So that being said, let's go ahead and talk about the first point, what the disciples knew. Again, it's interesting to me that the Jewish elite perceived these two men, Peter and John, to be ignorant and uneducated. In fact, if you look at the uh, word in Greek that is there translated in the ESV as common men, it is simply that, a commoner, someone that your average Joe and what is astounding is that that was correct. Because in the culture of the day, when we look at the ancient Near East during the time of Christ, what we see is that if you were born in Galilee, you already had one mark checked against you. It was those who were in Judea that were the creme de la creme. They were the top crop. But then what we also know is that 
young Jewish boys in particular were taught the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet at the age of three, and they began reading the Torah, the law of God, at the age of five. And so if you became an educated Jew back then, it was something that had to begin early on, even as a child. And usually it meant that your, your parents, grandparents, The leaders, the theologians of the day, look at Peter and John, and they rightly sum them up. They knew that they were uneducated. They knew that they were commoners. But then they were astounded. Why were they astounded? Because of this simple yet profound phrase. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. So what was it that the disciples knew? What was it that made them stand out? Why were they astonished? They were astonished because ultimately, and this, this, was, this was critical then, and it's no less critical today. They were astonished because ultimately the theology of the disciples was the basis of their relationship with Christ. Out of that relationship, was birthed what they believed about God. And in essence, if we were to look at the text that I did not read, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, what we see is that the disciples knew these four things. One, that Christ died and rose again. And I encourage you, if you go home and you ponder on this text, I encourage you to read the first part of chapter 4. Because we see there that there are four things that are explicitly stated as things the disciples knew. One, that Christ died and rose again. Two, that Christ's triumph over the enemy liberated the man who was crippled. So it's because Christ was victorious, because he rose again from the dead, that this crippled man was healed. Three, Christ is the cornerstone of faith. And we take that for granted, but it would have been absolutely earth-shattering for a Jew during the time of Christ to have said that anyone or anything other than the law of God was the cornerstone of one's faith. But that's exactly what the disciples were doing when they said they referenced Christ as being the head cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that the elders, the leaders, rejected. And then fourth, they knew that Christ is the only one capable of salvation. Oftentimes we believe in our circles, sometimes in our churches, sometimes subconsciously. We see this when we begin to examine our lifestyle. We believe that we can be saved simply by believing something. And unfortunately, what goes unstated is that many of us understand faith as being nothing more than intellectual affirmation. Oh, yes, that makes sense. Therefore, it's true. And the impact that it has on our life, the relevancy that it has for our life, the way that we live it out is negligible. That is not biblical faith. It is contradictory in the biblical sense to say that we believe something and yet live in a way that is contrary to what we say we believe. That's why um, uh, in, in James he said that faith without works is dead because biblical faith is faith that is active. So if by believing you mean an intellectual affirmation or consent to something, then that has no ability 
to save you. It is impotent. The biblical understanding is that faith must engage not only our intellect, our ability to understand, but more importantly, our hearts. Now, this point has been brought home to me time and time again. I'd say probably the first time was about 20 years ago. I was in a nursing home in the town I grew up in. And my grandmother had recently been admitted to the nursing home. And um, it was not the type of place where uh, you would want to stay for a long period of time. And I remember visiting her one day and looking around and seeing some people who were literally strapped to their wheelchairs. One lady in particular who was tied to her wheelchair, and, and the entire time that I was there visiting, all she did was make syllables, sounds. There was very little coherence intellectually. And I remember at the time asking myself the question, how would I share the gospel with somebody like that? And I wrestled with it. I genuinely wrestled with it because in my mind, where I was at that time, I said, how can they truly be saved if they don't understand? And yet her capacity for understanding seemed to be so limited. And then I realized something. Not for the last time then, but I have continued to be comforted with this truth from Scripture, which is that our faith, beloved Christian, is more, is greater than, not less than, but greater than our ability to understand it. Our faith is in a living person with whom we have a relationship. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What well, height or depth or things present or things to come? The intellectual capacity to understand this great mystery of the gospel, will that separate us? God forbid. Because the faith of the Christian is faith in a person. A restorative faith. A faith, in a relation, a faith that ultimately engenders a relationship with Christ our King. Another way to look at this and stating the obvious for those of you who've been here for the past several Sundays, but um, those of you who do not know, I fell off a ladder on October the 5th, um, breaking, breaking my calcaneus bone, my heel bone. Never had a broken bone in my body in 39 years of my life, but I've known a lot of people who broke bones. In fact, everyone that I know pretty much has broken a bone, and I've always sympathized with them. But I never truly was able to empathize because I never had a broken bone myself. And I can say now that I know what it's like to have a broken bone. I understand it, not simply intellectually. I understand it experientially. And I want to make that point because for many of us, when we ask the question, am I a Christian? The answer that we give is nothing more than an intellectual familiarity with what the term means. The question is, have you been with Jesus? Because this ultimately is what separated Peter and John from everyone else. Even when they were rightfully summed up as ignorant and uneducated men. That doesn't mean they didn't know anything. We just saw four things that they knew emphatically and declared unashamedly. But what it does mean 
is that they had spent time with Jesus and the knowledge that they had of his person made everything that they proclaimed powerful. I suggest to you, as I survey my own life, and as I survey the status of the church in America in the 21st century, that our problem is not in the message we proclaim. Our problem is not in the doctrine that we uphold. Our problem is not in whether or not you fall on the left side or the right side politically or theologically or any other um, ism or schism that you may want to conjure up. The problem is we have not been with Jesus. We may know him intellectually. We may be able to, in our circles, quote verbatim the Westminster Confession of Faith. But that ultimately amounts to nothing more than a lot of wasted brain cells if you don't know Christ personally, if you have not been with Jesus. So this brings me to the second part, which is what did the leaders know? Well, again, there are three things from this text that the leaders knew. One, they could not deny that a miracle had occurred in the name of Christ. Here was a man who was crippled. He was brought every day to the gate of the temple. They passed him day in, day out. They saw this man. They could not deny that something profound happened and that it had happened because of the name of Christ. We see that in verse 14. It says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You see, when the unbelieving world attacks the church, let it never be because we do not practice what we preach. Let it never be that they cannot oppose the life that we live. May it be instead the exclusivity of the gospel. The fact that we as a people stand and proclaim the very words of Christ, which is that there's only one name under heaven whereby we can be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. Secondly, they knew that Christ was a threat to their security. We see this in verses 15 through 17. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Why? Because they saw that the power of the gospel was a threat to their security. Thirdly, they knew that the consequence of the gospel message spreading would be an undermining of everything they thought they knew about God. And I want to emphasize that, stress it, and even camp out here for just a bit. Because we have the benefit of living 2,000 years after this story was written. We have the benefit of wonderful preaching, wonderful theology, sound doctrine that's been handed down at the expense of the lives of men and women throughout the centuries. We know the truth, praise God. However, if you were living during the time of Christ, the people that would have been the experts about God were these very same men, these Jewish leaders, these rabbis, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They would have been the ones 
who had crossed their I's and dotted their proverbial T's, they would have been the ones who could have expounded for minutes and hours and days on the mystery of the nature of the divine being. They were the ones who were convinced to the point of death that they were right. The difference, and this is critical, when we compare Peter and John with the Jewish leaders, is that the Jewish leaders knew about God, but they did not know God. They had heard about Jesus. Many of them probably had heard him preach and teach personally, because this was only a few days after Christ's resurrection and ascension. But knowing about Jesus is not enough. Hearing him teach and preach was not enough because they did not know him. They affirmed everything that you and I probably could affirm conceptually about God, but they denied experientially everything that they affirmed intellectually. What they believed about God was shaped by what they knew about him. And unfortunately, they were wrong. Lest we stand on a pedestal and think too critically of them, we need to affirm the fact that these men were not swayed by the popularity of Roman philosophy, Greek philosophy. Many of these Jewish leaders were not swayed. They would have, no doubt, based on the writings of Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, we know that many of these men died in order to protect the temple. So these were not men who hated God. They were just men who didn't know him. And so as we come against a new year, as we, as we rest in the shadow of 2019, as it quickly approaches, let me offer this challenge to you. Do you know Jesus? Not intellectually, but personally. Have you been with him? Even the disciples of Christ, before his passion, were confused about his identity. We see this in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 9. When Philip asks Jesus, show us God, show us the Father. And what does Jesus reply? Well, he says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's one thing to know about God. It's something else to know him. This brings me to the third part, um, which is the fragrance of Christ. What do I mean by this? Well, again, one of the most heart-gripping phrases in this text is the end of verse 13 that says that they recognized, the Jewish leaders, the learned theologians, the experts on God, recognized that these men had been with Jesus. This, to me, is the most compelling, the most staggering, the most profound statement in all of this passage. There's a difference between someone who acts like a Christian and someone who has been with Jesus. A fundamental difference, an essential difference. A difference not simply in kind, but in essence. We are transformed. We are a new creation, as Paul says in Corinthians. When the Jewish leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, they knew they had been with Christ. 
The Greek word that is translated boldness there in our text is actually um, the word that means confidence. These men were confident in what? In what they knew? Yes. But not because of what they knew, because of the person, because of who they knew. And so when it comes to how we understand God, how we relate to God, it's not enough to know about Him. We must know Him. And secondly, they were confident because of their, the exclusivity of their message. The exclusivity of the gospel message was enough to convince the elders that these men were different. These men were a threat, just as Jesus himself was a threat. Now, you can have an exclusive message that excludes everyone except those who believe the way that you believe and still be lost. An exclusive message that does not establish that the heart of the gospel is a restored relationship is one that is exclusive for no good reason. We've just celebrated Christmas. And it's one thing to sing, heart the herald angels sing, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it's another thing to know the Prince of Peace. It's one thing to be able to affirm that Christ came for those whom God has chosen, as we like to remind everyone in our Reformed tradition. But it's something different. It's the heart of the gospel to remind us that those whom God has chosen in Christ, he has been reconciled with. The gospel initiates a restored relationship. And if that relationship has not been restored, regardless of how much theology you know, regardless of how accurate your doctrine is, if that relationship has not been restored, you have not been with Jesus. Really, Christianity is that simple. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, we are the aroma. I love that word. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul began most of his epistles with acknowledging, either explicitly or implicitly, the union between the Christian and Christ. It's a restored relationship. Those who have been with Christ have the fragrance of Christ on them. Now, let me, let me flesh this out a bit and talk about application and what this means. What does it mean to have the fragrance of Christ? Let me suggest three areas of our life that you and I should have the fragrance of Christ if we have been with him. First, I'm going to talk about one that is common to everyone here this morning, and that is corporate worship. When we assemble on Sunday, is the reason for our assembly to expose others with an encounter with God? Or do we simply do it out of a sense of obligation? Do we get up on Sunday morning saying, oh, it's Sunday, I've got to go to church? 
Or do we get up and say, what an opportunity to manifest the character of God among the community of saints in a way that we can do no other time during the week? Do we see this as an opportunity to engage others when they enter the doors with the living person of Jesus? Secondly, in our practice of what we call spiritual disciplines, you can call them by several names. We like to create lists of what they are. I'll just mention two which are meaningful to me personally. One is Bible study, Bible, reading the Word of God, spending time reading and meditating on God's Word. And the other is prayer. Do we see those disciplines as obligatory? Or do we see them as opportunities? Are they opportunities for us to dialogue and to hear from the heart of a living creator God who longs to have an intimate personal relationship with his covenant people? The way that we see those disciplines is a reflection of whether we have truly been with Christ. Finally, in our desires, we just finished an excellent, Robert, uh, Pastor Robert finished an excellent sermon series on uh, walking in the Spirit. Ultimately, we learned that walking in the Spirit is a byproduct of our union with Christ. But oftentimes, we want to focus on, what should I do? And when we do that, ultimately, we end in failure Instead of asking the question, who should I know? And when we know Christ, when we know God in Christ, when our hearts have been warmed, warmed by the power of the Holy Spirit, ultimately we are able to relate to him as a person with whom we have a relationship, a restored communion, a fellowship which is deep and which is profound. Now, don't know if uh, any of you have ever spent much time in a tire shop, but uh, maybe you've had your tires replaced lately, and maybe you've waited for your vehicle there in the shop. I've had this happen a couple times. Um, two or three hours later, you go home, and you don't have to give an alibi. Your spouse or whomever it is knows exactly where you've been because you smell of rubber. There's something about being in the presence of a tire shop, even if you become immune to it while you're sitting there and it disappears. As soon as you leave, the same way with, you know, many other fragrances in our life but, um, or, or odors. But if you are around something for a long period of time, then unbeknownst to you, other people can smell it. And in a much more positive way, when we have been with Jesus... His fragrance, his aroma lingers in our worship, lingers in what we say, lingers in what we do. So that when others hear us speak, they see us, they see how we behave in our lives and how we conduct ourselves. They too know that we have been with Jesus. So in conclusion, let me simply give this challenge to you as we look ahead to 2019. Ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I know that I am a Christian? Do I simply know about Christ or do I know Christ? And if I know Christ, can others sense the fragrance of Jesus in my life? Let us pray.
Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that as important as right believing and right behavior is, we ultimately oftentimes fail to grasp the importance of right relationship. And so, Father, we pray that as we look ahead that you would use this word through the power of your Holy Spirit to stir up in our hearts a longing, a desire to be with Jesus. And as we go about our lives in the workplace, at the store, on the road, wherever we go, whatever we do, we would ask that we might have the fragrance of Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, 